Hi there, listeners. It's Farnoosh. And I just want to say I'm really honored that you've chosen to subscribe to So Money. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. The fact that you're here is not lost on me. Now, if you're enjoying these episodes and you're benefiting from the advice and you want more, I've actually created something really special for us. It's called the So Money Members Club. It's an online platform where you can connect more closely with me and engage with fellow So Money fans who want to become more empowered in their financial lives. The website is So Money members.com. And when you go there, you'll learn all the benefits, including exclusive monthly finance workshops, private group calls with me. You get your questions answered in our member community. I'm often in there weighing in, and you get instant access to all of our workshop recordings. We have a robust library that's growing so far. We've had workshops on investing in real estate, kids and money, and how to earn more in 2024. And most of all, it's fun, positive, encouraging, all the things personal finance should be. Go to somoneymembers.com and I hope you'll join us. I'm limiting enrollment and doors will close soon. Check out somoneymembers.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hosting the So Money Podcast for almost 10 years, I've been learning a lot about how to best serve you outside the show. I've begun to offer pop-up workshops and a So Money Members Club. And with each new line of business, a lot goes on behind every transaction. Stripe helps simplify and ease payments with Tap to Pay on iPhone, which helps me grow revenue and reach through accepting more in-person contactless payments when I'm out in real life promoting my programs. Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe give me the ability to scale quickly and stay flexible with quick setup and no additional hardware required. And it's not just ideal for me. From local pop-ups to global retailers, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe help businesses of all sizes accept contactless payments right from an iPhone. Whether your customers want to use their card, Apple Pay, or other digital wallet, now you can accept contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. So Money Episode 1618, Tapping Your Intuition to Lead a Fuller Life with Shirin Eskandani, founder of Wholehearted Coaching. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. This was my literal dream come true. Like this was my dream opera, Carmen, dream opera house, the Met, dream everything, dream contract. And I had imagined this moment so many times. So as a young girl, I always thought I would be like so happy and excited and like jumping for joy. As a young woman who just moved to New York, I would always say to myself, you know, if you ever sing at the Met, you'll know you're good enough, right? You'll know you made it. And I'll never forget hanging up that phone and realizing I didn't feel any of those feelings. And all I could think was, you are not good enough for this. 
Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We're starting the week talking about intuition, how to tune out everyone else's expectations, to get really quiet and listen to yourself, to understand what you want for your goals. Our guest today is Shireen Eskandani. She's a mindset and mindfulness coach, founder of Wholehearted Coaching. And a lot of the work that she does today with clients is informed by her own experience as a singer. In her operatic career, she learned that if we do not pursue our dreams with mindful intention, we can very quickly burn out and resent the things that we once used to love. Shireen, like me, is Iranian. She was born in Iran, immigrated here with her family to Vancouver when she was just five years old. And then she moved to New York to become an opera singer and did that for about 10 years, winning multiple awards, performing at Carnegie Hall and the Metropolitan Opera. We'll have to listen to find out why that career did not continue. It was her choice to pivot. Shireen and I talk about intuition and how it manifests in our bodies and our lives, the fear of wanting for something that may not be what others have envisioned for you, dealing with that friction. An important conversation as we start the new year, an attempt to start fresh in perhaps our careers, relationships with others and with ourselves. Here's Shireen Eskandani. Shireen Eskandani, welcome to So Money. It's nice to be sitting down with you. We share many friends in common, including Rochelle Fredson. Shout out to Rochelle, who's been on this podcast. If you're looking to write a book, she helped me write mine. Um, everyone go to Rochelle. This is so cool. A fellow Persian in the house. Uh, you were born in Iran, Shireen. Uh, so I want to learn a lot about that journey, your family's immigration here and those early years, what that was like. But fascinating career you've had. First, uh, as a professional opera singer, you've performed at some of the biggest stages, venues, and today you are a sought-after life coach with a very unique kind of lens through which you see the world and you help your clients. So, so much ground to cover, but let's go back to those early childhood years immigrating here. Tell me a little bit about what what prompted that move for your family and some of the earlier memories you have of being a new kid on the block in the States? Yeah. So first, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, and yes, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time because I think also just as an Iranian in the world who exists kind of in, in the United States, um, I'm, I'm, my family immigrated to Canada, but it's, you know, it's all the same. Um, it's just so wonderful to see what other Iranian quote unquote kids are up to, especially those that kind of exist outside of what we know are the traditional roles like engineer or doctor, you know, <laughs> so it's always lovely to really Triple uh, PhD holder. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yes. So it's always really great to to connect with other folks. And so, yeah, so I was born in Iran um, in the 80s. And, you know, my family immigrated to Canada. We moved to Vancouver, Canada um, because of, right, the revolution had happened. My, my family stuck around because they're like, you know, let, let's just kind of see what happens. And then it was really kind of the Iran-Iraq war that I think was the um, was the thing. And at this point, when we immigrated, it had been going on for like seven years. You know, it was a super long war. And so, you know, the whole immigration process takes a lot of time. We applied to kind of every English-speaking country because my parents were really solid in their um, English-speaking skills. And it's almost wild to think as, as an immigrant sometimes that like, 
I could have had an alternate life in England or Australia or the US, but we were accepted into Canada and we moved there and we moved to a part of, um, we moved to Vancouver, which has actually a pretty big Iranian population. But my family moved us to an area that did not have a lot of Iranians. I think it's because they wanted us to kind of like learn about the culture. Uh, my family was very proud to be Iranian. Like we spoke Farsi at home. We celebrated Nowruz. You know, we did all the things. So it wasn't like they were trying to, they were worried about us integrating. But it was this really wild thing where my sister and I were like a handful of kids of color at our elementary school and our high school uh, because it was just not a super diverse city at that time. So my my very first memories um, were kind of just feeling like the odd person out, you know, especially with an Iranian family. Take me back to also the the thoughts that your family was having, especially your parents around working here. I, you know, we think like, oh, we just like my parents immigrated here. My dad came because he was a student. And so he had that to kind of finish and then worry about the next step. But for your parents, what were the career prospects? What were they doing where they felt they could come and go to any country, any English speaking country and do that without much of a pause? Yeah. So that's such a great question because now that I've kind of, I'm an adult and I've kind of looked at the past, I realized how so much of my, my money story or even my journey as an entrepreneur is, you know, reflected in what I saw in my parents. So we moved to Canada at the time because when they were telling immigrants to come, they were like, Hey, if you have a master's, if you have this, you're going to easily find work here. And that was not the case. That was not the case for my parents. They both had masters. They both both had really great um, careers in Iran. My mom was a librarian. My dad was an engineer. Um, and so I think that was like a big shock to them. They both had careers that they loved and they were very good at. And, you know, I think especially for my dad, that was a real struggle because as a Iranian Middle Eastern man, for him providing for his family financially was a really big deal. Um, and, you know, you still see this, it's kind of changing within our culture. Um, but within a lot of cultures still, it's like the man has to provide. And so for my dad, I think he did a lot of different business ventures here. He finally figured out what felt best to him. But that was a real struggle of, you know, wanting to provide for us, but also everything they had worked for kind of meant nothing in this new country they found themselves in. Yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to understand and, and highlight because that is a part of the immigrant narrative that sometimes gets overlooked. It's like, oh, you think that you're just done because you got here. And that's, of course, a huge step. And sometimes, you know, you don't have time to think about the next step. You're just trying to get out of your country, especially one that's war torn. Then you get here. And that is, uh, I can only imagine the adrenaline and the stress. So many immigrants have to just start over that process is is so it's full of admiration but gosh it's hard now you did something very untraditional uh within the persian community which is that you pursued the arts yeah what were you thinking no um, <laughs> how did that conversation go in your household clearly you had an enormous talent i mean becoming an opera singer that must have been a talent that presented itself early and a passion that presented itself early but then to um, get your family convinced to invest 
in you to get to the point where you now you're 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 a professional singer and you're singing at the Met and Carnegie Hall. How did that work out for you? So yes, very untraditional path. However, even though like my parents, especially like my dad, very tra- traditional ideas around their occupations and their work, they were so supportive of me pursuing this. So I do come from a pretty artistic family. From my mom's side, um, her aunt was like a concert pianist. And this was back in like the 1960s from Iran, immigrated from Iran to Germany and became this pianist there. Um, And on my dad's side, my grandmother was a really famous singer in Iran. So music is a big part, was a big part of my family. And so exactly as you said, when we immigrated, I joined choirs. That's kind of one of the things you do at school. And I think I was like first grade and my teacher at school pulled my mom aside and said, listen, your daughter, I think has like this talent, this ability. And I think you should kind of look into it. Here are a couple choirs for you to try out their professional children's choirs. And my mom was like, let's see what happens. And that's where I got my start with singing. And thank goodness I found it because music and singing to me were really where I felt most at home, you know, especially as this immigrant kid who felt so kind of out of place, you know, with, with everything, with my culture and my customs, even just like the lunch I brought to school, um, <laughs> being, I'm, I'm sure you experienced this, oh, right? I wrote about that. It's the potato and parsley sandwiches that I would unravel from loud tinfoil. Oh my uh, God. That was, I know these. Great. Oh my gosh. Farnoosh, my mom I used was to so give popular. <laughs> I used to take abgusht for oh, lunch. No. <laughs> Stop. Why? Yeah. For, for folks who don't know, abgusht literally means like it's delicious, but it translates to meat water. It's like it's meat clumped up with soup. It's just it should not be taken to a second grade cafeteria. Nope. So having said all that, um, setting the stage for this, you know, really finding music for me was like a godsend, right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> did you water that? Did you wash that down with some doog? Oh my, if my mom, could, if we had enough thermoses, I'm sure my mom would have sent me some doog uh, <laughs> as well. That's carbonated milk beverage, everyone. Yeah, delicious. <laughs> it's delicious. Um, but really, as we say, quote unquote, character building, right? Whew. Um, so yeah, so feeling really left out. So singing for me was so great. And I think, you know, my parents saw how much I loved it. We also have this musical family. And so they really, really were incredibly supportive. Um, and so when I was about to kind of figure out what I wanted to do with school, with college, I was like, I want to pursue music. Now, here's the thing too. Also, it's kind of, I feel like I, it's not that I compromised, but as an Iranian, I was like, I, of course, I'm going to go get my bachelor's. Like, I'm, I'm not just going. So it was a, it was still a very immigrant way of doing the thing in which I was like, I'm going to go become an opera singer, which You're is wild. to excellent sing. at that, whatever it is. I've heard this That's from it. others who pursue theater. They go to Juilliard or they go to Yale because, and I just studied journalism. I went to Columbia. It's almost like there's yes. an Ivy League associated with this uh, passion project of yours. Then, you know, they're, 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 they get calm. Exactly. That's exactly it. And so when I look back on singing, it started off as this thing that really brought me joy, but then it kind of started to get melded with this thing of like, 
I'm being the best. This is how I can be the best. And this is how I can be perfect. So when I got to college, I went to school in Canada. Um, You know, I was kind of like a big fish in a little pond. I was really talented. I was extremely hardworking, right? Um, Immigrant kid, Iranian. Um, And so I started to get lots of acknowledgement and praise and roles and all this stuff. And so then again, being an Iranian, I was like, well, I'm going to go get my master's. And I'm not just going to get my master's anywhere. I'm going to get it in New York. So I applied to like the top five music schools in uh, North America. I got accepted to the Manhattan School of Music here in New York, which is where I live now. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I got here and I just thought all I have to do is continue being the best and just work really hard. And let me tell you, one of the biggest wake up calls of my life was getting to New York and realizing everyone's the best and everyone works hard. Ooh, yeah. It was, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was tough. So I'm this like 22 year old kid in this big city and my whole kind of self identity started to crumble around me, right? Very much. My identity was around being the best, uh, being the best singer. And so instead of kind of, you know, maybe looking inward and being like, Hey, maybe there's some stuff we need to address internally here. I just doubled down on what I knew, right? So I started working even harder. I was even more of a people pleaser and perfectionist. I tried to be even better. And, you know, that got me really far. Um, So when I graduated, I was one of the few, uh, you know, few colleagues of mine that I got work right away. I was working all over the world. I was working in Italy and Europe. I was working in the U.S., Carnegie Hall, as you mentioned. Um, So I was kind of living what you would call my dream life. Mm. But I was miserable, <laughs> so miserable. Because but, what was missing? Well, what was missing was how I was pursuing my dream, right? Like all of that joy and excitement was gone. And it was all about, you know, trying to prove to everyone that I was the best. Um, I would only fixate on what I wasn't doing well. It was just this constant. Th- and, and imagine you're in the arts, right? Which is like, I mean, there's nothing perfect about the arts, nor nor should it be, but you're in the practice room all of the time berating yourself, being so unkind to yourself, trying to make yourself better. And so it was kind of my own work ethic um, that was making this thing that used to bring me so much joy was making me totally, totally miserable. So that was really hard to reconcile because it was like, and you know, now as a coach, I work with a lot of folks who are similar to me, which are like, I ticked off all of the damn boxes. So why do I feel miserable? And it's a really scary place to be. It really is. It is because you're like, I've done all the things and you start to really get skeptical and start distrusting your capabilities, everything you've been taught. It's a real existential crisis. And I think that's kind of what the quarter life crisis is sometimes about, especially for people who like you are overachieving in their 20s and they get to their 25th birthday and they're like, wait a minute, this isn't this, you know, basket of goodies that I thought I was going to get. No one's celebrating me. I feel I'm, I'm burnt out. But, you know, going back to the hustle and what ultimately got you to be traveling around the world and again, performing on these massive stages. Do you think you could have gotten there without that work ethic? You know, because like, that sounds great to me to be able to be at the top of your career. Is there another way though? And and looking back, could you have worked less and still gotten to these places and not work less, but work differently to get to these places? 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. For the longest time, I dreaded buying bras. It was like shopping for jeans. Impossible. You want a bra that's sexy. You want a bra that's comfortable. You can't have both. Well, now you can, thanks to Third Love. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, the ick, the ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem or problem. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school. Get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made with premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with the code podcast15. Did you know that I'm a podcast host and also a mind reader? Because I know that you want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising costs of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage. You want to attack pretty much anything standing in the way of you and your financial freedom, right? Well, here's one solution, more knowledge. This podcast helps, I hope. And you can use Yahoo Finance, where you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need to help reach your definition of financial freedom. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, and I know because I worked there for many years, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, customizable charts, so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The weather's getting warmer as I record. It's a nice 73 degrees on the East Coast. So finally, time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and fingers crossed hello to shorts and tees. And I need to update my wardrobe for the long haul. And you know, I don't want to spend a fortune. So luckily I found Quince. I'm honest. I've got a lineup of timeless pieces from Quince that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. I'm talking premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karakol jewelry, and tons more. Best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. I have t-shirts from Quince, pajamas from Quince, my very chic and fashionable sister-in-law, Hannah, her whole closet is Quince. And people often stop us and ask, where did you get this? Don't tell me the price. And then when I do, they're shopping on quince.com. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash so money for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's com slash so money to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash so money. So I agree with you. I think work ethic is incredibly important. I think challenge, and I think anyone who has a dream, you have to understand it's going to be challenging. Like there's, there's no way around it. I think the issue was, I just didn't know a how 
a way towards a thing that I wanted that wasn't unkind to myself or I wasn't kind of beating myself to that finish line, right? So I feel like I would get to the finish line and I would be so exhausted, right? I'd get the role, I'd get the whatever it is. And it was like, was this worth it? Like, was this actually worth it? And, you know, so I'll, I'll share my big, big wake up call was, so my dream from when I was a young kid was to sing at the Metropolitan Opera. I mean, for, for singers, that's like our Olympics, right? Like everyone would love an opportunity. Super Bowl. To, Super Bowl, exactly. To sing there. And, you know, I'd, I, I, at kind of my lowest of lows, really questioning whether I wanted to continue singing. I didn't know who I was. I was like, what's going on? I got this call from my agent and he says, Sharin, you know, the Met wants you to sing in Carmen next season. So this was my literal dream come true. Like this was my dream opera, Carmen, dream opera house, the Met, dream everything, dream contract. And I had imagined this moment so many times. So as a young girl, I always thought I would be like so happy and excited and like jumping for joy. As a young woman who just moved to New York, I would always say to myself, you know, if you ever sing at the Met, you'll know you're good enough, right? You'll know you made it. And I'll never forget hanging up that phone and realizing I didn't feel any of those feelings. And all I could think was, you are not good enough for this, right? And so in that moment, I like really woke up and I realized, oh my gosh, nothing outside of you is ever going to make you feel the way you want to feel. Nothing outside of you is going to convince you that you are good enough that's actually something you have to do yourself. And mm -hmm. I think I needed that because, you know, sometimes we get, uh, you know, a dream or a goal, we achieve it. And there's just something just a little wrong with it. Like maybe we find that dream partner and they're a few inches too short, or we get the dream job and it's like not exactly the position or the, the salary we wanted. This was perfect, Farnoosh. Like I couldn't have asked for something more perfect than this. And realizing that that could not make me feel fulfilled, happy, or proud of myself, that was a huge, huge wake-up call. Hmm. So I'm hearing that it wasn't about the opera. It wasn't about. It wasn't about. It wasn't about. You know, it was really about your internal lack of sense of like self capability and worth. Which, okay, let's unpack that. And this is what you do with your clients. This is like, this is not, this is a universal problem in some ways. And I want to know like, why, where does it begin? Because you had what seemed to be a very nurturing and supportive system at home, school, there was no one telling you you were, I mean, look, you feel the competition, that's, that's inherent, but, and then you were reaching all these pinnacles. What was the evidence that was lacking for you? And or maybe the feeling that was lacking for you at the core that you need to then need to go develop or or see to be able to feel what you need to feel, to feel successful ultimately and worthy. Yeah. I mean, I think this is going to be a different answer for, for everyone, but I think it always comes back to, I think all of us kind of carry what I, I call like a, a worthiness wound right? Just a part of us that doesn't feel worthy. And we think if we just pack that wound with lots of like accolades and achievements and people and friends and community, we'll finally be convinced that we are worthy and deserving and, and valuable. And 
And that's really actually not how it works, right? Um, all we just end up doing is just attaining more and more stuff and being like, well, why doesn't make this, this make me feel fulfilled? And when I kind of look back on my life, I think a lot of it is connected to kind of our immigration story, moving to a place in which I didn't feel like I belong. And, uh, you know, when I started to be recognized for my singing, um, is when I felt special, when I was able to, when that's when people saw me, right? That's when people made me feel seen and worthy. And so I, I think in my mind, I kind of just kind of made this connection between when you are really good at this, this is when you're really loved and appreciated and valued. And I kind of just, you know, created an entire, very mm-hmm. successful career out of it, right? Yeah. Wow. So now you're helping all people with this issue. Um, what made you realize I want to go into coaching? When and how hard must it have been to like say, okay, I'm, I'm walking away from this singing career and I'm at the top of my game? Many people. That's a. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. You also like. What did your mother think? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. She's like, all those singing lessons. (laughs) Let me tell you. So, um, so we'll kind of go back to that phone call because it's related to this. So when I said, I of course said yes to this job singing at the Met because duh. Um, and I had a year and a half to prepare for it. And of course, like any singer, I worked on my voice, but what I really focused on was what was going on internally. So I, that's when I really started to like get into, I'd gone to therapy for a long time. I love therapy. I think everyone should have access to therapy. Um, but I started to look into like mindfulness and mindset and I started to work with a coach and that process of working with a coach really shifted things for me. Like it just brought a lot of the things that kind of I was learning and it brought it into kind of this, this, it just, I, I developed this really incredible toolkit for myself of inner resilience and strength. And I say to this day that my greatest achievement in life isn't singing at the Met, but it's singing at the Met and enjoying every part of the process, mm-hmm. which included when I made mistakes, which included when things didn't go well, you know, I could stand on that stage every night, take a bow and know that I deserve to be there. Whereas before it would be me ruminating on that mistake I made a half hour ago or something that didn't go right. And so that whole process really taught me so much. And so I I work now with a lot of folks who are wanting to make a career transition and they come to me really hating their jobs. Some of them are in careers that they used to once like. So my experience of, of shifting careers was when I started to coach, I was able to, when I started working with my coach, I was able to find my love for singing again. Mm. And when I found my love for singing again, I could see it with clearer eyes. And that's when I realized I'm like, actually, this isn't the career for me. I love to sing, but I don't love being a singer. Mm. And, uh, and, and I just, I was like, I actually really love coaching. So I want to become a coach and we'll talk about that. But something I tell my clients is like, let's see if we can find the love again. Because sometimes I knew, I know if I had made a decision from a place of fear and anger and disappointment, which was what I was about to do before I got the call at the Met, I was like very close to quitting. I would have been thinking about that decision forever. I would still be thinking about it, maybe resenting it and maybe having just, you know, all of these negative feelings towards that time and myself. But because I was able to get to a place of like real love and realize, hey, this actually isn't for you. I could leave that career with a lot of peace. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really want for folks 
who are trying to make a transition. Maybe we don't get to a place of love, but can we get to a place of just groundedness? And we may make the same decision, which is leaving the career, but how it feels to leave that career is, is really, really different. So finding that love again, seeing the career through clear eyes, which was like, you know, traveling a lot, which is kind of cool when you're in your 20s. But at that time, I was in my mid 30s. And I was like, I want to be home with a partner and start a life. Um, You know, and coaching really was calling to me because I knew I wanted to be of service. And I didn't want to go back and get my degree in something. I didn't want to go into debt for another, you know, degree. Um, Coaching just felt so good. And Yeah. So that's kind of how I found it. It wasn't an easy transition, but I think, again, finding that peace and groundedness really, really helped. And so when I also explained it to people like my family, I was really grounded. Like there was no wavering. There was none of that. So when I told my family, I of course also did a certification Farnoosh that was highly like, (laughs) right. (laughs) The running theme. I did a really, yeah, of course I did like a coaching certification that was highly esteemed, all that stuff. But um, I, w- I wasn't wavering in my energy. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I feel really good about it. Here yes. we go. Yeah. You, you Marie kondo it. You know, Marie Kondo, <laughs> she's like, you got to thank your past. Yeah. It's hard to leave your past. It's hard to transition from maybe, you know, we were talking about careers and maybe it's like one weight to another and now you got to invite new clothing into your life. But it's like looking back and I talked to um, Cindy Spiegel about this, who I know you know as well. She's a guest on the show in the new year about how it's important to thank the articles of clothing, the experiences you've had in your careers that are in your past that have gotten you to where you are, that have brought you some joy. And that like you're a mature adult woman. Like you're allowed, PS, permission to change your mind and to try new things. I think that's the hard part too, is believing that this is okay to want for something different and new. Um, that's scary, but it's also maybe it feels a little unexpected of us. And that's a scary thing to step into, to try to feel like we have to justify this now to the world. But I mean, obviously being feeling grounded in it is is the way. All right. So now you're a coach, wholehearted coaching. It's all about trusting yourself, trusting yourself that you're enough, that you don't have to look for external validation. But tell us more about this crossroads that your clients are often in when they come to you and what they're really grappling with usually. Yeah. So I work, you know, I think as a coach, maybe other coaches can relate to this. I know my colleagues can. You oftentimes end up working with many versions of your past self. So a lot of my clients um, are oftentimes immigrants, kids of immigrants, um, or just folks who feel a little marginalized, um, which means that they are really good at what they do, really hard workers, overachievers oftentimes, and they're praised for that, right? They're, they're box tickers. They do all the right things. And they've come to a point in their lives, whether it's their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, 60s, I've worked with all age ranges, where they realize, I've ticked off all the boxes. I followed the formula that they gave me, and I'm not happy or fulfilled. And that is a terrifying and very exciting place to be, right? Terrifying in that, what the heck do I do? So whose formula am I following? And exciting in that, oh, I actually get to create that. 
And so as a coach, it's really helping them figure out what that is for them. And as you said, that word trust is a big part of the work that I do. I think that we all have the answers within us and that oftentimes the answers are kind of, we don't want to um, acknowledge them because of what those truths are going to say, what those answers are, which is oftentimes Mm -hmm. maybe leave that career, leave that partnership, um, or just have that incredibly hard conversation. Um, but I know that on the other side of those answers are all of those feelings and those, that, that life that we're looking for. So, um, coaching is a really great way to kind of offer that support during that time. Um, but it always comes back to, you know, what is best for you? Yeah. Because it's so hard to trust your intuition. Do you even know what your intuition is? I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and, and kind of give us, an example maybe of how intuition manifests and how to really know what it is trying to tell you to do, the right next step. Yep. So I think we all have uh, intuition. And it's so funny because in like bro culture, they call it my gut. Like my gut told me to do this. Uh, and <laughs> but when it comes to like women or anyone who like identifies as being a woman, it's like your intuition. Like, what is that? Right. But here we have all these podcasts about guts. But anyways, the point is one of my favorite exercises for intuition is what I call my I knew better exercise. So I ask folks to think of a situation where they said I knew better. It was a day after a week after a year after, and they think of a decision they made and they say to themselves, you know what? I knew better. I knew better than to say yes to that person. I knew better to say yes to that opportunity, whatever it may be. And I tell them that when we say I knew better, it means that something within us knew what was best for us, but we decided to go against it. Now, it may be really difficult to figure out what it was inside you that was saying do this, right? Because sometimes it's really hard to figure out how our intuition connects with us. So the practice is think of that instance where you didn't listen to yourself And try to think of the reasons why you didn't. What were the things that talked you out of listening to yourself? Was it other people's judgments? Was it a fear of the unknown? Was it a fear of failure? Was it a fear of making a mistake? That knowledge, that wisdom is so key. Knowing what talks us out of our intuition is really important. So I don't care if you can't figure out what your intuition, how it talks to you, what it says or where it lives in your body, but we all have that. I knew better moment. We all have it. Figure out what talks you out of listening to yourself and work on that. Sounds like you have to get real quiet. (laughs) You do. You do. Um, you do. But I think once we figure out you know, when you do this practice, you realize it's a lot of the same things that stop you. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the same things. And, you know, that's where we do the work, whether it's independent, listening to podcasts, reading lots of books, whether it's working with a coach or a therapist, but you say to them, Hey, I have this fear of the unknown that really keeps me from taking these courageous decisions. Let's work on it. Right. Yeah. And yes, it takes stillness. It takes work. But I'm telling you, when you start listening to yourself, that's when you start creating that path which is for you. Mm. Yeah. I dedicate a whole chapter to the fear of uncertainty in a healthy state of panic. And I've experienced it many times over in my life. And I think, you know, that's just, there's the only thing certain about life is it's uncertainties. And so the job is not, 
our job is not to try to fight the fear necessarily or try to control the situation, morph it into something certain, but it's rather to remember and reflect on who you are, what you're capable of, what you have been capable of, what your assets are and beyond money, right? What, what your, your unshakable, unwavering certain assets, which include like your relationships, your health, your can do itness, your um, ambition, all that stuff is valuable. And agreeing to yourself, like, I'm going to bring this with me into this uncertain world, I, I think it gives us more of that courage that we need. And, and knowing like things may not still work out, but we'll, we'll remain grounded. Uh, I really appreciate the work that you do. You're out there actually showing us how to do this and working with clients. Tell us how we can learn more about you. And I know that you also train other coaches in your practice, in your philosophy. So tell us everything. Yeah. So you can find me, um, on Instagram at wholehearted coaching. I also have my own podcast, wholehearted coaching, the podcast. And yes, I have a coaching certification for folks who are looking to become a life coach. Um, it's called the wholehearted coaching certification, and you can find out more, um, at its Instagram, which is wholehearted certification. I'm following you. Shireen Eskandani. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Shireen Eskandani for joining us. By the way, if you'd like to sign up for my investing workshop, I'm hosting a live one-time only limited workshop, January 25th, to offer my 20 plus years of financial expertise, my personal insights on investing. I'm going to help you chart a clear path to wealth and you're going to get answers to your questions that you're not going to be able to Google or find on TikTok. We're going to reserve time for your questions. I'm going to answer them directly. This is a one-time only engagement and you can register now. Just go to somoneyworkshop.com. I'll put that link in our show notes. I will see you back here on Wednesday. And in the meantime, I hope your day is so money. Hosting the So Money podcast for almost 10 years, I've been learning a lot about how to best serve you outside the show. I've begun to offer pop-up workshops and a So Money members club. And with each new line of business, a lot goes on behind every transaction. Stripe helps simplify and ease payments with tap to pay on iPhone, which helps me grow revenue and reach through accepting more in-person contactless payments when I'm out in real life promoting my programs. Tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe give me the ability to scale quickly and stay flexible with quick setup and no additional hardware required. And it's not just ideal for me. From local pop-ups to global retailers, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe help businesses of all sizes accept contactless payments right from an iPhone. Whether your customers want to use their card, Apple Pay, or other digital wallet, now you can accept contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.